Welcome to Climate Optimus. I'm Jason Lowes. And I'm Todd Deshida. Thanks for joining us. If you like the podcast, help us grow by having a friend or family member subscribe. You can also just take their phone from them and when they're not looking, subscribe on their behalf. And I'm sure they'll forever be grateful. I like that idea. Yeah. I mean, building our listener base is really what helps ensure that we get, you know, these climate solutions out to a broader group of folks and in turn, you know, hopefully increases our ability to, you know, to affect change. So today we're going to be talking about the crisis that was the depletion of the ozone layer that took place back in the, the 70s and 80s and at the time was a pretty scary thing, but, you know, has turned out to be a real success story. And it's striking actually the number of similarities it has to climate change. And, you know, we felt like potentially offers us a different way to view the current situation. And so that's what we're going to be digging into today. What do you remember about the uh, the ozone layer crisis? You know, I know that we were both fairly young when I think a lot of that was in kind of full swing. And my memories are kind of specific about it. I do remember sty- like styrofoam cups being a, a topic because I think there were CFCs that were used in the creation of styrofoam. And I just remember people around me and adults being like, oh, you know, we're not supposed to use those styrofoam. Everybody was pretty, pretty on board. That's pretty what I astute. remember. Is that people were like, they were concerned about this thing. Like, that's going to put a hole in the ozone layer. I remember hearing that kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> from people. <laughs> and it stuck with me. I remember it to this day. I remember that stuff being like, geez, a hole in the ozone layer. You know, it was, it was kind of a scary scary thing to think about as a kid kind of seemed like a sci-fi movie or something but i do remember those kind of things being talked about yeah it, similarly you know for me it just felt like people were pretty tuned into it and aware mm-hmm. of the dangers of the situation and the fact that we needed to solve it it was kind of like this maybe not a clear and present danger but it was something that was right in front of us and had people's attention yep and i, I mean i can remember learning that climate change was a thing but i don't remember there being at least in the early days, this very like direct consumer focus on, you know, the problem and trying to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. Like just a consensus, not a lot of doubt, right. About no. what, what it was and what needed to be done. No, that, that, yeah. There wasn't the, the counter conversations about, you know, is yeah. it real? And I don't believe in that. It was, it seemed pretty well accepted. Yep. Before we talk more about the history of ozone depletion and the similarities of the issue, to, to climate change, wanted to call out uh, a reason for hope. So, so just over a week ago, a group of about 450 scientists signed off on a letter addressed to PR firms to, to drop big oil. It was sent to you know a number of PR execs, as well as some of their clients that are more sustainably focused, like Microsoft and Unilever. And it really calls out the obstacles that some of these PR campaigns have been for climate action and highlights a study, a peer-reviewed study that was published this last year in the scientific journal Climate Change that identifies hundreds of campaigns by PR firms that were you know, basically designed to obstruct climate action. And so obviously the goal of the letter is to put pressure on these PR firms to you know, reject fossil fuel money and continuing to sort of enable the the disinformation that, you know, the fossil fuel industry has been so good at. And so we'll see where things land, but I thought it was it was hopeful to see a big group of scientists really taking a stand and, you know, 
being able to focus energy at really an industry that could be instrumental in taking away big oil's ability to to spread their message. That's awesome. That's 450 scientists, huh? Yeah, it was again the campaign is, you know, just started a little over a week ago, so we'll see, you know, how effective they are at at being able to amplify the letter and in turn put pressure on these PR firms, but you know, it seems like a pretty compelling call for action. Yeah, that's cool that they're tackling that. It kind of goes back to, you know, our one of our previous episodes about, you know, misinformation and kind of these campaigns that obstruct a lot of uh, climate work. So that's that's pretty rad. Yeah, and, and the PR firms might be more easily compelled than, you know, the fossil fuel organizations who have no interest in changing their, you know, stance on disinformation. Right. You know, another thing I heard just driving down the road today that a federal judge invalidated the results of an oil and gas lease in Gulf of Mexico saying that the Biden administration failed to properly account for the auction's climate change impact. So there's been a hold placed on that. I think it goes back to the Department of the Interior for review. I don't know enough about legal stuff to know what happens from there. But at least for now, the sale has been halted. Yeah, I think it is a pretty big deal. Uh, And again, don't understand all the legal ramifications necessarily, but um, certainly delays, you know, this big auction, which I think is a positive thing. And and hopefully there are mechanisms to ensure that, you know, it stays off the table. Because at the end of the day, if, if the Biden administration is serious about its climate pledges, we can't expand production of fossil fuels, right? Yeah. So let's pivot to today's topic. And before we get into, you know, the the history of kind of the ozone depletion issue, I thought we'd first talk about like, you know, what is the ozone layer for folks who may not know exactly and, and why is it important? And and in full disclosure, I didn't appreciate all the scientific... Um, I still don't appreciate it. <laughs> so what is the ozone layer and, and why is it important? Well, it's basically a layer of O3 molecules. So that's three oxygen atoms sitting up in the stratosphere. And the stratosphere is the layer of the Earth's atmosphere that's about 9 to 18 miles above the Earth's surface. And it acts kind of like a protective layer that absorbs UV radiation. So, you know, I mean, my sort of simplistic brain was thinking like, almost like sunscreen for the planet, right? It's it's blocking that harmful UVA, UV radiation from, from making it in. And conversely, you know, when we had this issue arise where there was concern that the ozone layer was being depleted, that potentially results in some some big problems, you know, increased risks of, of skin cancer, damage to one's eyes, damage to plants mm. and, and marine ecosystems. I mean, the way I, you know, kind of interpreted the the potential consequences is like, you know, without it, we're, we're basically sort of that guy who like falls asleep at his home tanning bed <laughs> for, for 10 hours. Like, yeah, bad news. Definitely. I hate sunburns and I, I work really hard to not get them. And I've done a pretty good job throughout my life, I feel like, of not getting them. But they're brutal when they happen. They are. I've got, I feel like I go about 10 years between bad sunburns. And then it's like I, you know, I learned my lesson again. But yeah, I can't imagine having that be sort of the status quo where, you know, if you walk outside, even with layers of protection on, you're looking at, you know, at scorching yourself. Yeah. Seems like a scary thing. Yeah, it does. So I think you were going to kind of walk us through some of the history of the ozone issue, kind of where it started and, you know, ultimately where it got solved. 
Yeah, so they they began kind of taking global measurements in 57 of the ozone itself, and that there were some signs of trouble started in the 70s, but it really wasn't, I don't even think the trouble that they started to find wasn't really actually related to the, to the ozone at first. So there was a guy in the UK named uh, Jim Lovelock, and he was a scientist himself and built a bunch of recording devices. And from his house on the beach or whatever in the UK, he noticed like that there haze in the air. And his theory was, he's like, I think there's pollution coming from all around the world. And I can see it out here in the air. And everybody said, you're crazy. There's no way that, for instance, like pollution or smog from LA is get you know, all the way out here. And he started to take these measurements and he found CFCs in the air, basically everywhere he went. And they said, well, it can't be everywhere. And so he said, okay, well, let's find out. And so he went on some research vessel, clear down to Antarctica, right? Whereas obviously not as far away from pollution and stuff as you can get. And they found this stuff in the air down there. So it was pretty well determined that like, hey, this stuff's in the air. He printed a paper on it. But he said in the paper, ironically, he said, I don't think there's any harm in any of this, right? <laughs> I'm just telling you this stuff's in the air. Um, and Well, and he, he turned out I think to be you, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think you're going to get to this, but like CFCs for folks' benefit are... Oh, yeah, you should talk about that for sure. ...are chlorofluorocarbon gases and were used in you know, refrigerants and yeah. propellants for aerosol sprays, et cetera. So that was, it sounds like that was what he, he was the first one to sort of notice that that stuff was really spreading around the atmosphere. And the reason they kind of invented this stuff is that, or that CFCs were, were popular, were that they were really good at doing things like refrigerants and propellants and aerosol sprays. And they were also relatively safe to human beings, at least on the ground level. Like, I think one of the demonstrations somebody did to sell this stuff was they sucked some of this stuff in their mouth and then blew a candle out to show that it like would kill you and it wouldn't start a fire either. And so that was, <laughs> that was why these things became popular. To be. So they found out this stuff was out there in the air. And then a couple other chemists, uh, some scientists uh, named Sher Sherwood and Molina started studying this stuff. And they found out that this stuff was depleting the ozone layer. And yeah, you know, obviously they were like, "This is this is terrifying. We gotta we gotta tell people about this." And so they cranked out a a paper in uh, 1974 that provided evidence of this, and no one really cared. And so they went to the press with this stuff. They're like, "We we gotta tell people about this." And I know recently we talked about the movie Look Up, but it really reminded me of that. They were the, at the uh, forefront of of yeah. They were at the forefront action. of trying to get this message out. They became activists, basically. And they got completely vilified by everybody. The, the companies using this stuff, the scientific community kind of turned their back on them. They were even accused of being Russian spies. And by the way, if you haven't seen, there's a documentary. Um, so there's some spoilers here. I should have said that earlier. There's spoilers. Um, there's a documentary <laughs> on uh, PBS called uh, Ozone Hole, How We Saved the Planet. And it's a great documentary and you should check it out. It's really positive and a really kind of feel-good kind of story. So they discovered that it was these CFCs, these chlorofluorocarbon gases that Jason just talked about, that basically are drifting up over the years. And they hit the stratosphere, and these UV rays break off these chlorine atoms, and it stops that chain reaction or sets off a chain reaction of its own, and basically it destroys these ozone molecules. And in 85... 
a guy named Jonathan Shanklin discovered through data this hole over Antarctica, and they tried to notify NASA about it, and they could. It was hard to get a hold of them. Finally, they did, and NASA was like, "Well, we saw some of this in our data, but we thought it was wrong. We thought it was an anomaly, so we just threw it away." <laughs> <laughs> but they determined that, in fact, there was these holes developing over Antarctica. So, you know, to kind of sum up what happened. So in the 70s, we kind of discovered that this was happening. And of course, there was doubt from various points in the government and, you know, some of these chemical companies. But slowly over time, with the help really of the media and these scientists really pushing this science out there, they started to realize that this was, in fact, happening, that there was a hole in the ozone layer over the Antarctic. Finally, you know, they got folks in the Reagan administration convinced that this was a problem. And uh, the head of the EPA at the time took this to the, to the, you know, to the United Nations and the Montreal Protocol got signed in 1987, which banned CFCs. And yeah, the rest is kind of history, I guess. But yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story, I think, that has a lot of parallels to what we're dealing with with climate. And I know that you looked at some of the climate history. Yeah. So in 1972, there was, the UN had their first Earth Summit. Climate change was kind of called out for the first time. They started warning governments about it. And then, in, in an ironic twist for those who know the role that Exxon kind of plays today in the climate debate, in 77-78, there was an Exxon scientist by the name of James Black who initially just communicated internally to Exxon, burning fossil fuels, their product, could warm the planet. And, you know, he, he warned that, you know, some countries would benefit and others would have their agricultural output either, you know, reduced or destroyed. Mm-hmm. So pretty big revelation, especially from within, you know, industry. And so that precipitated, you know, within a couple of years, Exxon initiated a, a big research program. And then towards the end of the 80s, as the word kind of spread about climate change, you had NASA climate expert James Hansen go in front of the Senate and talked about how you know global warming had begun. You had the you know formation and first meeting of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, what we you know refer to as the IPCC. When that stuff started gaining momentum, Exxon halted their research program and then pivoted, did like a 180, and started sowing doubt about its own conclusions. And then you know for those who remember. In 97, had the first, you know, climate summit in Kyoto and was the first attempt to kind of create something similar to what, you know, was done, you know, with the ozone situation in Montreal. But unfortunately, while there were nations that signed on, Exxon had worked really hard to undermine action. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the U.S. Senate agreed, you know, not to ratify the treaty. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I didn't fully appreciate how you know overlapping these timelines really were, um, obviously with very different outcomes over you know a twenty year period. Yeah, I think I think one thing that strikes me as similar is kind of the stark warnings, you know, from the scientific community and just some of the similarities between the messaging. You know, the scientists estimated that if CFC use was banned immediately, right, ozone loss would go on for for years you know, if you stopped right now, it would still continue, which obviously is very similar to kind of what we're talking about with carbon, right? You know, but obviously, if we keep pumping it out there, uh, it's going to be even worse. And so that 
that was one thing that struck me as being very similar. And, you know, some of those projections too were, were pretty stark. You know, they stated that 17% of global ozone would have been destroyed by 2020 if we hadn't done anything, which, you know, that's a pretty crazy number. By 2065, a UV radiation falling on even mid-latitude cities like Washington, D.C. would be strong enough to cause a sunburn in five minutes. And uh, DNA mutating UV radiation would be up more than 500%, and skin cancer rates would have just been off the charts. So there were some pretty stark warnings, and I think people really listened to them to get that done. So that those were some of the similarities I noticed anyway. Yeah. And I think the other one that we were already kind of touching upon is, is the industry deception piece. I mean, you know, the chemical industry, at least initially maintained that the, the data on CFCs and the stratospheric ozone were inconclusive and didn't warrant drastic action. And of course we know that's right. almost carbon copy what the oil industry had said about, you know, climate change, that the science was unsettled and that we needed, didn't need to worry about it today, that there was time to, to address it. Um, you know, I think it was interesting though to see when you look at the massive turnaround that Exxon made where they were sort of at the forefront of discovering the problem and communicating it. And then obviously deciding when it, you know, it wasn't going to benefit their share price that they needed to shut that down and adopt a different campaign. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was really surprised in that story, you know, how fast, uh, like DuPont, for instance, turned around at a certain point to phase out, to eliminate use of CFCs. Um, They had really denied the the science basically for maybe as long as they could. And maybe they saw the writing on the wall too, you know, that they knew that they were going to have to do this and it's better to just come out and kind of claim it as your own idea. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right or something first with your you know with the shareholders and whatnot to phase this stuff out and i i think also too maybe the time that they spent denying probably bought them some time to find some alternatives too which they knew they had by the time they they uh phased out cfcs and kind of replaced a lot of that with hfcs which kind of solved the the ozone problem but then created more more of a climate problem yeah it would have been interesting to be a fly on the wall in these, you know, these boardrooms where these discussions were going on. Now, granted, DuPont has more than one product that they were selling. So maybe there wasn't as much on the line and that made it easier. Maybe they actually took, you know, ethics classes where the folks at Exxon missed those. (laughs) I I don't know, but, but yeah, I mean, at at least at the onset, there were striking similarities in terms of the messaging. It just kind of illustrates that when you kind of, shift the mic from having your scientists be the communicators to the marketing department, that that's when the bullshit really starts to flow. Right. Right. That, that was you supposed know, to be funny. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. It's funny. It's it's like if, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. Kind of. This is the kind of funny that, that we deal with a lot here, uh, here on the show. The, the other, you know, I think very clear similarity was the impact of leadership in terms of getting these issues resolved, right? You had, you know, the Reagan administration, his first EPA administrator really didn't do anything. Uh, and then, you know, it sounds like they got sued by NRDC and that helped motivate them to, to pivot a little bit. 
Yeah, I, I know too. It was it was a major change even within his administration, and it wasn't until they got Lee Thomas, who in the EPA, who really kind of took took this stuff on, right, and and started to become a believer in this. And he and the the Secretary of State at the time, and I I cannot remember his name, really convinced Reagan that this was a real deal. And Reagan had skin cancer too, and I think that played a part and his sympathy toward this issue. It, it's kind of amazing when you think about those things, about how if somebody has some personal, a personal tie, how much it impacts their willingness to do something. Totally. That affects so many people. Yeah. You know, this became like a, a thing that he could see, you know, being a big deal. He finally got, and there were people in his cabinet and stuff that did not believe in this. There was like the uh, Hodel story of, you know, just tell people to wear some sunglasses and put on hats and that got leaked <laughs> and it became a big deal and the public was outraged by it, you know. And and oddly, it was Reagan and Thatcher, finally, who really took this thing on and not only did stuff in their own countries, but basically said, no, we're, we're going to get the whole world to stop using this stuff. And it was also another another similarity was it was Thatcher in 1990 gave a speech about the duty of wealthy nations to subsidize, you know, developing nations effort to get rid of these chemicals uh, because they had the means to do so, which sounds very similar to what we're dealing with right now, you know, at right. COP26 and trying to get wealthy nations to step up to the plate to help developing nations with, with climate change. So yeah, the leadership thing, I, I really think that was a, a key takeaway. You really have to have some some leaders, prominent leaders, take a big role in making this stuff happen. So while there, you know, there are obviously some really striking similarities between the situation with the ozone layer and climate change, you know, we know that we're not in the same place that we are in terms of solving climate change, even though the issues in the big picture hit the hit the radar of scientists and and the public and the government about the same time. In my mind, one of the big differences, probably obvious to folks, is that when we were talking about the ozone layer and the need to to phase out these CFCs, it was you know it was a much smaller, more narrow slice of the pie, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you you didn't need CFCs to drive your car, or power your home, or you know do all these these major things that we were so reliant on in terms of fossil fuels. You know, you weren't you weren't talking about shutting down the economy because we didn't have something, you know, to help with our hairspray or, you know, our, our coolants in, in refrigerators. Um, and so I, I think in my mind, that's one of the biggest, maybe the most obvious differences between the two. Right. Yeah. And it's probably worth pointing out too, when we, we get hard on, on leaders about taking on this issue versus the ozone, I, I'm sure it's much easier when, when the, when the problem is easier to solve and it's easier to get consensus and, you know, it's kind of like trying to hit a T-ball versus a, you know, a hundred mile an hour fastball. It's when you can, it's easy to kind of, you know, speak profoundly and come out and, you know, take up the charge when you know the ball's just sitting there on a, on a tee for you to hit. So I, I can see that too. This is obviously a much larger problem in scale. Yeah. And, and clearly while there was, you know, industry deception in both situations, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's fair to say that big oil has, has done a lot better job at, at halting progress. I mm -hmm. mean, 
they clearly had massive amounts of money and you know funded a very sophisticated campaign from many different areas like we talked about in our climate disinformation episode so it seems like that made a huge difference you yeah know, in terms of the directions that we ended up you know ozone layer versus versus climate change and then the other one that kind of sticks out at me is it it seems like there was a little more and you kind of mentioned this already like more of a clear and present danger with the ozone situation you know you you had something like skin cancer which you know almost everybody knows somebody that has had skin cancer and how scary that that can be and that was that was out there as this is what's going to happen if we don't deal with that problem mm-hmm. and then it seemed like it kind of culminated with having this hole appear over antarctica this like really tangible thing that again probably you know galvanized a lot of support for for action where it's not to say that talking about rising sea levels and you know droughts and floods and you know all those sorts of things aren't scary but i think for a lot of people it it maybe felt too big to comprehend and it felt more in the future right i think as well the media landscape and how that kind of relates to the polarization of politics is very different as well in that time and i think this particular problem wasn't polarized politically as much as climate change has, has become polarized I think this was viewed more as this is something that's going to affect all of us. And it was a little bit more of the people versus maybe a small sector of the business community. I also think that trust in the media was a lot different than I think if the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, if somebody, if they posted an article, I think people generally accepted the facts of those articles, right? And if a scientist said something and one of those papers posted it, I think people generally got behind it. You know, one of the things that that happened too is that in 1975, I think All in the Family aired an episode that tackled some of this where one of the characters, you know, was accusing another character of, you know, that their hairspray was blowing a hole in the ozone layer. And it garnered (laughs) huge support. And the business community basically admitted that that episode caused, you know, a huge shift and... You know, we're not in kind of those network TV days either. Yeah, and we weren't in the days of news as entertainment. We weren't, Mm -hmm. you know, we didn't have social media around. That was, again, further sort of putting people into these these different buckets. Yeah. And yeah, I think you're right. I think the media landscape definitely definitely is is a delta between these two things. Yeah, I think when Walter Cronkite, you know, started talking about something, you know, people, people listened, right? Right. So... I guess it starts to feel like potentially a you know a depressing story of like hey we we did well with ozone but we didn't do well with climate change, but I I think looking at the ozone situation and how things played out there are some reasons to be to be more you know positive when we look at where we are with climate change. We now have what we didn't have with climate change you know thirty years ago. We have people experiencing the adverse impacts, and so that obviously leads to more people being concerned and builds that, you know, that public momentum for action. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing in my mind that sticks out is that, you know, it seems like once they got to that Montreal Treaty, there was this framework that everybody had agreed to. And, you know, once you had those rules of the road in place, it was easier to figure out 
what needed to be done and how quickly, et cetera. And while Paris still isn't fully fleshed out, we do have an agreement in place and it is taking shape. And then it becomes much more difficult for us to not talk about the elephant in the room because you've got this, you know, these annual meetings and, you know, as a forcing function, again, that I think helps put pressure just like, you know, the public can on, on governments to, to step up and, and to deal with the issue. Right. And, you know, I think the other, the other big piece that, you know, we talk about in a lot of episodes is there are alternatives to fossil fuels. We didn't have that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you know, you can go out and buy an electric car today. You couldn't do that then. Um, Mm -hmm. We have renewable energy that is cheaper than traditional fossil fuels for producing our electricity. So again, you know, we're in a different place now than we were then. And having solutions available means that you're now putting more of that choice in the consumer's pocket and enabling them to to act and and to decide, well, hey, I'm not going to you know continue to be a part of this. I'm going to go out and subscribe to that renewable energy program or or buy that buy that electric car. You know, the takeaway for me about this whole story is I view it as kind of just an entire reason for hope in of itself. And I know that when you're talking about the climate change business, that those are hard to find. But I was really um, impacted in a positive way by reading about this story and watching that documentary on PBS. I was really pumped up about it. And my my wife, Chelsea, didn't get to watch it with me. And as soon as I was done, I was like, you got to watch this thing because it's just so <laughs> positive. And uh, we just need to find a way to do with climate what we did with the ozone. And maybe this is just around the bend. You know, maybe that pickup story where the leaders all get together and make this thing happen. You know, hopefully it's coming. Yeah. And it shows it can be done. You know, albeit there are differences, there are, you know, there are many striking similarities. And so I think, I think you're right. I think it is a reason for hope. Well, I think we've reached that point where we tee up, you know, an opportunity to, to make a difference. This week, giving the history of, you know, industry preventing action on environmental issues, whether we're talking about, you know, the ozone layer, whether we're talking about climate change, the reality is their influence is is strong. And in the case of the oil industry, it's been very successful. And so we thought an appropriate, you know, action for this week would be for folks to reach out to Representative Carolyn Maloney who is the chair of the House Oversight and Reform Committee and leading the investigation into Big Oil's deception campaign. And we want to send her a message applauding her investigation and telling her that we need to hold these fossil fuel companies accountable, basically, or they're going to be able to continue to undermine climate action. So it was positive to see them hold the meeting that they did back in back in October. And I know they're planning another one here in February. But I think it would be great for all of us to be able to send her a note and, you know, really underscore the importance of the work that she's trying to do on that committee and pushing back against, you know, climate disinformation. So we'll have talking points on our website to help you with that process. But if we all send her a note, whether Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, I think it would I think it would make a difference. Well, I think that's a wrap for today's pod. Thanks for tuning in. And come back next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. 
Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. That's climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. Thank you.